So, just as we did last time I preached, we are going to read over the totality of Acts 4, and then we're going to dive into it verse by verse. But the question that we're going to be seeking to answer is how do we respond to the Spirit of God and God's community? And this is a super fun, exciting question. And then as I read, you're going to agree. And I'm going to read the next section, and you're going to be scared. Because I was scared. Hopefully, you're going to be scared too. Um, so preference, preferencing it a little bit gets a little intense, but it's okay. We're going to keep reading. We're going to keep going. We're going to push through it. But we're going to open up by reading chapter 4, verses 32 to the end of chapter 4. So open up your Bibles, please. Turn to Acts, Acts 4. 32. And if you don't have a Bible in your pew Bibles, it is page 834 in your pew Bibles. 834. So Acts 4.32 starts off by saying, All the believers were one in heart and in mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them, bless you, that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone in need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprius, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement or son of exaltation, depending on what version you're reading, sold a field he owned and brought the money to and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So, if you remember in context, well, first off, there's no verses, chapters, headings, whatever, when the Bible was originally written, those were all thrown in later. And so if we go back just a step to what you guys ended on last week, which is verse 31. I'm I'm pretty sure Ted covered this, if I'm remembering correctly. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. First off, have you ever prayed so hard the room shook? Like, come on! I wish I was. That's awesome. But they, were, they all prayed, and the Holy Spirit was moving in that place that it shook the building. That's crazy. Like, 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 that's so surreal that the Holy Spirit, come down from the Father from heaven, shook a building where they were praying, and filled them so that they could all speak the word boldly. So then we enter to the next verse. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. So this oneness that Luke is talking about in writing this comes from a shared experience. This group of believers had a shared, miraculous, Holy Spirit event which then drove them so close to each other that they were one in heart and in mind. 
Uh, there's a, a friend group of mine in college. I, I wasn't, long story, there was a group of friends in college. Um, and they got together and they prayed and they worshiped often, all the time. They'd get together, they'd just pray, worship, whatever. They'd love being together. And eventually there was a core group of them who they were one time meeting, praying, whatever, and they had a shared religious experience. What that was, I don't know. They, didn't, they never really talked about it after. It was a little weird, but that's fine. But after that experience happened, after that event happened, after the Holy Spirit did something in their communal lives, they were inseparable. The Holy Spirit touched them as a community so that everything they did from that point on was basically with that community. They shared one heart and one mind which is crazy. But that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in. And the word one heart, that word heart, cardia in the Greek, meant a lot of different things. Believe it or not, when the Bible was written, they did not have 21st century technology. One smile, I'll take it. So the heart, the heart was seen as something greater than we see it as now. The heart was seen as the centermost part of a person. What does that mean? So this scholar put it this way. There were six, one, two, three, four, five, five or six, maybe seven. I'm not counting. Different aspects that the, that the heart was related to. That is the heart is where identity came from. So the fact that I identify something, my identity comes from my heart. It's the vital center of a person, pumps blood. That one tracks. It is the center of emotions so the heart is where they thought emotions came from, their feelings, like this burning passion in their soul. The heart also served potentially as a center of memory and cognition and understanding, kind of seen as the brain a little bit today. It was seen as the center of all motivation. So if I was motivated to do something, that most likely came from my heart. And lastly, it was the center of one's religion and ethics. I didn't say ethics in college. I studied religion in college. But the reason why, what they follow, their moral codes, all this stemmed from their heart. But now, saying there's a group of people that share in one mind or one heart, that means it's a group of people sharing in their identity, sharing in their even emotional states, sharing in their cognition and understanding, sharing in their motivation to go out and do stuff. One heart. One author put it this way. After the prayer ended, they prayed in one voice. They shared in one faith. They shared in one identity. And they shared one purpose. One faith. Faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again and communed with them. Was in community with them. One identity as people restored by the Spirit. People who the Holy Spirit came into and did something radical in their life that they're going to drive into this community together. One purpose, to go and to witness the gospel. Not keeping everything they had in here, but sending it out. One heart. When I was reading this and thinking like, huh, understand. That's a weird thing to think understanding comes from the heart. Because like we have brains, you know? 
kind of the point of them. But if they truly believe understanding, you got to think most of these people came from very different understandings of life, different philosophies. Like even looking at it now, they all came, took their understandings, put it aside, came to one understanding. And it wasn't, oh, we have one understanding that we are the church. It's one understanding in their faith in Christ Jesus. <laughs> that means those crazy Pentecostals down the road and those crazy Lutherans down the road the other way, one faith. It doesn't matter what background they came from. What matters is the shared faith in Christ Jesus. Hot topic in our nation. Y'all pick a side of the aisle, right? Democrats, Republicans, doesn't matter. One faith. You got to think, it doesn't matter what happened in the past because Paul would eventually join these ranks. We're going to get there later in Acts. Paul, the one who persecuted Christians, who went out and killed Christians just because the Holy Spirit would touch and move him in this community. How radical of a shift is that? That the Holy Spirit took someone who murdered these exact people and bring him into this community to share in one heart, to share in one understanding, in one emotional state, in one identity, in one purpose, in one Jesus, in one Holy Spirit, in one mission. One heart. And the mind in this time was seen, could be referred to as the soul. So one soul. One soul. Like, I feel like soul is such a personal term nowadays. Right? Like, I, like, like, I feel it in my soul, you know? I feel it in my soul, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go act on it. But everything they had was one. It was shared in this radical community. Moses talks about this oneness in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 6. So Moses is saying to all the people of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. All of you, Israel, the whole nation of Israel, love the Lord your God with all you have. It's going to be on all your hearts. You're going to share your purpose in your hearts. Could you say that that is true about the person sitting next to you? Maybe. Maybe it's your husband or your wife. Maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's someone who's been at this church. Okay. Could you say that about people at other churches? Share in one heart. Oh, they have a little bit of wrong theology. That's why we go to different churches. But we can still share in one heart. One heart for Jesus. Right? One heart. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. As a prisoner for the Lord, I, Paul, Paul is saying this, then urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. 
You've all received a calling. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all, in all, and through, through all and in all. One! One faith. It's a radical call to unity. It says it doesn't matter what you believe, but you are one. You are my people. You're my chosen one. Through what God called you to do. God called you through the Holy Spirit to be his child. Right? Like you are his child, his chosen one. And I'm not a parent, but I'm assuming most parents in the room, if you have children, you want your children to be one. You don't want them fighting, moving apart from each other. Unified. That's what God wants for his children. Be one. Be unified in God. And this is a radical call that was met. And how they do it. They did it by claiming none of their possessions as their own. None of their possessions were their own. Not one. None. It says none. That's crazy. Like, I know me and my household, growing up, not really now, it's different now. Growing up, it's like, okay, like we have guests over, you can use the downstairs bathroom. Okay, it's full, go use my mom's bathroom, don't go in my dad's bathroom. That's the family bathroom, You don't go in their dad's bathroom. But it's everything they had, not saying that that's bad, that's, that's fine, personal preference, but, but everything they had was brought together. Everything they had was communal. Hey, you need a place to stay? I mean, I've, I only have one bed, but it could be yours for the night. Everything I have, that's what the belief said, everything I have isn't mine, but it's for us. It's for God's community. Sharing everything they had. It's a radical and practical call to unity. Like that's asking a lot. But think about it, was it ever yours anyway? If you really think about it. Right, if every good thing is a blessing from the Lord and you have a house, two houses, four houses, anybody? So it's not actually ours, we are to use it for the Lord. But it's radical also. It's going to take a lot of sacrifice on our end. It's like a lot of sacrifice sitting here being like, I really don't want, like, I really just want a night in. Now I really just wanted to sit on the couch with my cup of hot chocolate wrapped in a blanket and watch a funny movie. But this person needs a place to stay at night. That's tough. I mean, it shouldn't be tough, but it is because we're human and we have our things and we like our things. We like our schedule and we like, our, we like it our way. Preaching to myself now. That's crazy. It's a radical call. And it continues. All the believers were one heart mind 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them. It's so cool that we see this great community forming. We see this community where wherever anybody needed anything, it was provided. It was a family unit. It was so intertwined that we had, that the believers had everybody's back. And now it continues on with the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They never stopped testifying because that's the foundation of why we have community. Right? We wouldn't even be here if we weren't saved, if we weren't forgiven from our sin that Jesus Christ alone forgave us from. God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them, every single believer. When's the last time you could have said about yourself or about even someone else, wow, God's grace is so powerfully at work in you. Wow, the Holy Spirit's so at work in you. I mean, think about me. That's a long time ago. That's how I would answer it. No time recent. Because I feel like we just continue to shift and shift and shift just in our own ways. Just because life goes on, it gets hard. But that's the realization here. Is that grace is the cause of this community. It's not that they really just loved community. It's not that they really loved having all these friends and they go with any, with any one of their problems. It's not that they really loved, you know, being provided for. But they shared this common grace that drove them together. And this power of the Holy Spirit, as shown by the apostles, and even a couple verses before by all the disciples, or all the believers, they all spoke boldly about God. The Holy Spirit gave them the boldness to preach. The apostles in their ministry was marked by a bunch of different miracles after miracles. You'll see, as we continue to unpack and read and unfold the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit using miracles and the power of that in this story. And the power to transform lives. That whatever you were, you don't have to be that here. Whatever you were, that's who you were. Here, you are a son or daughter of the risen king whose Holy Spirit has cleansed you from your past. Your sins are now separated as far as the east is from the west. That's the community they were building. The new has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Jesus Christ no longer here. But this new community, this new thing that Jesus is starting is here. Verse 34. That there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or property, land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales to the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who was in need. It was a willingness. The Lord didn't say, hey, you have to sell your property. You have to sell your house right now. Other people need that money. No. But it was a willingness to heed the call. Lord, I see people in need and I have stuff. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to provide. 
Holy Spirit might put it on your heart, but he's not going to make you do it. And this Holy Spirit, who continues to work, continues to move believers toward that direction. Okay, it's also good to note that typically here, these people weren't living in one home, saw someone in need, and then sold their home to give those people in need, and then they were the people in need. That'd just be a bad cycle. It was typically people who owned multiple homes or a home in multiple fields or multiple fields or whatever, and they'd sell all the excess. They'd have what they could live on, and they sold everything else, and then bring that to the apostles' feet. But they'd place it down at the feet of the apostles to provide for anyone in need. There was a true belief. It wasn't, it wasn't like a good, oh, hey, they're ending poverty. They were ending poverty in their community. And practically, it's how it was working out. Which is, me and Sam just had this conversation a couple weeks ago. How crazy would that be if Christians really like, like if the whole church, not like Little C Church, like Capital C Church, the whole church as a whole, really wants to end poverty? We could do it. Like there's enough people who could sell enough things to provide enough money or buy enough property to house people who are homeless. Like that's just crazy. That's a tangent though. But that was what was going on here. The promise of the Holy Spirit was connected to the ending of poverty. And that's what was going on here. We see in Deuteronomy 15, it's similar with the Israelites. When the Lord's telling them about this promised land, or Moses telling them about the promised land, he says, however, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land, the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will, ri- he will richly bless you. No need for, need be no poor people. If only you fully obeyed the Lord your God and are careful to follow these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. And you will lend to many nations, but you will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but be ruled over none. Now, I notice there was a stipulation there. It was if you obey. Looking back, we see Israel stop obeying. Promised land, come less promised landy. Just made up a word. Similar to the New Testament. And the promise of the Holy Spirit. We just drift away. But there was no needy persons. Again. The promised land. The promises of God. Have always and will always be correlated to the end of poverty. Because who shall inherit the heaven? Who shall inherit the kingdom of heaven? I saw someone connect the dots. The actual question. The meek. Yes. And that goes on to say the poor. Then the weak. Yeah. The kingdom of heaven is associated with the ending of poverty. But yet, if we are truly to be the kingdom of heaven, should not we be striving for that? Another side tangent. But there were three steps in giving this money. So as you see, first step, you had to sell your property. So all these people, all these believers would sell their property. Then they brought the proceeds to the apostles. That was step two. You put it at the apostles' feet. 
then the apostles would distribute it to all those who had needs, all they knew who had needs. Interesting call on the apostles that they, that's a large call on them. They have to know every need in the community and how to best address it. Like that's crazy first off. But there's these people, they're sacrificing. They're selling their fields. A field is the way that they got income and how they fed their family. They're basically saying, hey, it's better I sell this and give to the poor than hold on to it and make myself money. That's a big call. That's a big charge for the church. Then we finally read about Barnabas. Barnabas. First time Barnabas appears in script. Second time Barnabas appears in script. First or second. But he eventually becomes an apostle down the road. But Joseph, a Levite from Cyprius, who was also called, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas being named here kind of shows the golden standard. That's how things operated. That's how things were done. Is you sold your property, you brought it to the apostles, you put it at their feet. That was the order of things if you were to give your money to this community that was starting. He did the same thing as the rest. Barnabas acts as an example for the masses. So Barnabas, gold standard. Think about that. It's going to be important soon. Souls property gave them money. Then we enter into, enter into chapter 5, verse 1. Which now a man named Ananias came together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money from himself, for himself, but brought the rest and put at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up the body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you do this? Or how could you conspire to test the Holy Spirit of God? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. That's crazy. That is a wild portion of scripture. So Ananias and Sapphira 
Um, they could have been believers. They could not have been believers. We're not sure. Uh, I'm erring on the side of probably not, but who really knows? But it's commonly thought of that they were conspiring. They were looking for status. They were looking to impress everybody. So when they brought the money to the apostles, they said, here's all the money we got for the land. When really they kept it back. Why would they say all the? That's a great question. Because they did the same things that everyone else did. They placed the money at the apostles' feet. Same thing as Barnabas, right? Same standard. But yet what they did was wrong. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Have you not lied just, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. If you're just reading the narrative, it's very easy to miss this, but it's crazy to me, Peter, right? The Holy Spirit enlightened Peter to see Ananias' heart. Gave him a word of knowledge, wisdom, prophecy, whatever you want to call it, but a supernatural thing to see Ananias' motivation. And the heart and the sin of the heart is the driving factor of why they did what they did. And Satan filled their heart with this idea of sin, with this desire to sin, with this desire to impress people with how much money they were giving. Hey, maybe if I give this much money, or maybe if I really do give all the proceeds from my field, and that here I gave all my proceeds, they'll make me an elder, or they'll give me some sort of status while being there. Satan filled their heart. We've seen Satan in the past with Judas control one's heart. But here Satan just filled their heart. And as they leaned into that sin, leaned into that desire to impress for status, whatever it was, they in turn lied to the Holy Spirit. They said, okay, no one's going to find out. But the Holy Spirit knew. Can't really lie from the Holy Spirit, right? Can't lie to God because God created you. Because God knows you. God knows your innermost being. He loves you, but he hates sin. Ugh. Such a predicament. But he knows you. And he knows every thought you have. And so as they say they're giving all this money, which they're really not, they chose sin. No one made them sin, but they chose to sin. And Peter, in what he said, didn't condemn them, if you notice that. I mean, it probably sounds condemning, especially now that we're reading it and not hearing it. But, like, he didn't say, you're going to hell. He didn't say, you're this, you're that. He just said what happened. And then he asked them questions. He didn't condemn, he didn't judge, he didn't wish hardship on Ananias. 
for the Lord's judgment came. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all those who heard what happened. Great fear. This happened to someone who sold property, right? Like, that's crazy. Like, imagine being someone sitting. I mean, they didn't have pews, probably on the floor near the apostles. But sitting there, you see this person who owned all this property, however much it was, say, here's the money from this property. Yeah, they lied. They said, here's all the money. But like, how noble is it even to give some of the money? Like, yeah, I sold my property. I sold my house for this. And here's most of the proceeds. Like, that's noble. That's a noble act to do. Right? Like, I'm selling this to give most of it. Like, I'm going to keep some still so I could, you know, buy groceries the next week or whatever. But, but like, that's a noble thing to sell a piece of property and actually put it at the feet of the apostles to use for the church at large. The first time we see the word church actually in the Bible is here, is in this chapter. But how noble of that that is. But yet they lie. They said, no, here's all the money. and says some of the money. And then they died. Like, imagine sitting there watching that and be like, they sacrificed so much and they died. That's crazy. What have I sacrificed? What, what have I lied about? Making that conversation turn internal. People become confronted with the reality that God is a God who hates sin. Like, God detests sin. Like, they lied in the presence of God. They lied, they lied to the people of God, which in turn also lied to God. And they died. Ananias died. Sapphira dies in the next three verses or something. But they died. For lying? Like, that's how much God hates sin. And that's how much God hates sin in his church. Like, God's an all-loving God. God's an all-powerful God. He's an all-righteous God, but he's an all-just God as well. And a just God has to punish sin. And he hates sin. All the lying. Disunity is a detestable sin, as it says in Proverbs. Like, their sins are detestable to God. God hates sin. Such a perfect God came be around sin. Sin has no place when it's in his courts. And yet he killed these people who were on the outside doing something that looked noble. But in their hearts, where their hearts were, was filled with sin. And the response to sin is death. Now God saved us from that sin when he sent his son Jesus Christ. When this community who is one mind and one heart is united under the power of Jesus' death and the Holy Spirit that was to come, God still hates sin. Jesus died for you because he loves you and God hates sin. And those exist in the same timeline. He loves you so much. He wants you to turn to him. He wants you to repent. But he hates sin. He hates sin, but he loves us, but he hates sin. And that's what the believers here are wrestling with. And that as they see someone die from sinning, 
They're confronted with the holy God who hates sin and judges sinners. The good news, the gospel, is that for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That day when we sit before God, kneel before God, stand before God, however you want to look at it, is our judgment and all the sin we have committed is covered by the blood of Christ. But that doesn't mean we could go on sinning. I mean, something has to change. That means this community is now witnessing how something has to change. How in their old life, they could probably get away with a lie. How in their old life, they could probably raise through the ranks a little bit if they lied like that. They probably gain some status if they lied like that. But under the new covenant, under the new creation of the Holy Spirit and that God has brought, there's no room for sin. So they sit before God. Some young men came forward and wrapped up the body and they carried him out. The church was filled with young men back then. Young people. The apostles were still in their teenagers, most of them. Like, that's crazy. And then Sapphira comes in. And think about the welcome she's expecting when she comes in. Right? Like, she comes in. My husband just gave all this money to the church. And I'm going to come in. I'm going to be like a princess. They might even scatter rose petals on the ground. Because I'm part of Ananias' house. Ananias and Sapphira. Giving all the money to the church. Just lying to keep some for ourselves. And they're walking into this. She's walking into this, expecting something different than what she gets. So she walks in, not knowing what happened. And Peter gives her a chance. Gives her a chance to repent. Gives her a chance to say, no, we were wrong. No, that's not all the money from the field. He says, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. How could you conspire to test the Lord? Testing the Lord is something that we've seen a couple times throughout Scripture, a few times. What's so crazy to me, and I, I, I mean, I know I do it. I know most of us do it. I mean, I'm not going to assume for you, but I probably do it sometimes. We all fall in the patterns of, Lord, are you, like, like, is this really you? Like, are you really doing this? Like, okay, what well, if I do this? Are you really doing this? Like, what's going on here? Like children coming before a father. Trying to understand what's going on. But testing the Holy Spirit. The fact that people can have and will test the Holy Spirit. People who were created by God. People who were so loved that he sent his only son to die. Continue to test the Holy Spirit of God. We see testing again in Deuteronomy as Moses is talking to his people. Deuteronomy 6, 14 to 17. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord who is among you is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God. 
and the, and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. For the Lord your God is among you, who is among you, is a jealous God. That's crazy. I mean, there's a great song based off that by Maverick City. Shameless plug. But a jealous God. Like, God is jealous for you. Like, that's crazy to think that. Like, the creator of the universe wants you. Right? Wants your time. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a relationship like this, ever known anybody like this, ever even had anything like this. Like, that's my car. I'm a little jealous when someone else has it. I don't know who does that, but maybe some people do that. But in a relationship, I mean, you might call it something different. But like if you, your best friend, your spouse, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, it's you want them with you. And when they're not with you, you're not happy, you're sad. You're like, oh, I just wish they were here. Now you might not call that jealous. That's probably a much further step down than you would call it jealous. But something else is competing for their time. And you want them. You're a little jealous. Right? Like you're, uh, the example from, yeah, why not? Example from my relationship with Sammy. Like, there are times like Sammy calls me. Like, can't talk right now. I'm playing COD with the boys. And Sammy, the next day, is upset most of the day. She goes, you didn't have time for me yesterday. I'm like, I was busy. I was doing something. I made these plans. And I wouldn't say that's jealous, but... That's on the border, right? Like, like that, that, that's basically jealousy. I mean, to a much less extent. She's not a jealous person. I'm not saying that. She is actually very uh, accepting of my time with the boys, but that's beside the point. But a jealous God, like God wants you and God wants your time and God wants your thoughts and he wants your heart. He wants everything about you. He's a jealous God. So when you start giving your time other places, when I start giving my time other places, when I say, okay, I could do my devotionals right now, or I could try to get to this next level in this video game. Or I could do my devotionals right now, but, I mean, Moosey really looks like he wants to go play. You know, I could do my devotionals right now, but this or but that. Or I could spend time with my father. With my father, the one who created me, the one who loves me. Oh, but I have this going on. He's a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you. I mean, I don't know if that happens all the time. But in the end, eventually, that's going to happen. Sometimes. Hopefully not to any of us. But it happens. Like, like that's what happens at the end of times. It's his anger burns against these people. His anger burned against Ananias and Sapphira. Who came into his courts, into his church, with his people, this community he set up to function as a family, to function as interwoven, completely sharing everything in their life. And they lied. And the reaction of the Lord was to kill them. Now, I'm not saying there's going to be any of you if you guys lie about something. Probably not. Probably not. I mean, I don't know. Happened here, might happen. I don't know. But in our life, it makes us look inward. Where are we wrong? Where can I turn from what I was doing, from my plan, from my desires, sinful, 
harmful to the family, to the Lord. And to not end up like these two. Continues verse 10. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all those who heard about these events. A fear of the Lord is a healthy thing. Fear of the Lord is actually so sweet. In scripture, I believe it's in Proverbs. It says, the fear of the Lord is my strength. Separate from the joy of the Lord is my strength. Different verses, but. My fortress, that's it. The fear of the Lord is my fortress. But like, like the fear of the Lord can be good. Can be. Because he is a fully righteous God. If there's anything unrighteous in our life, if there's anything unrighteous in the way we interact with our community, with God's people, we see how he wants us to interact. He wants us to sacrifice. He wants us to give. But if there's anything unrighteous in our life, what is there for a righteous God to do? In one's own life, our own sin leads to death. In our own life, our desires can also lead to death, but can also lead to life. Our desires put into action. You know, a belief in God. And so I always define belief. I say it all the time. This isn't belief. This is belief. Right? Like if I believe it's going to rain outside, I'm going to take an umbrella. Right? If I truly believe the Lord's God, I'm not going to say, all right, God, I believe you're God, and I'm just going to... Say you're God, and then I'm never going to go to church. Or I'll only go to church Mondays and Wednesday nights. And I'm never going to think about you again in the week. Never going to think about you again in my life. That's not belief. And that's how we define belief. That's not belief in God. Belief in God is here and here. If you truly believe he is Lord, then we have to sacrifice. Just like the community in Acts had to sacrifice. Like it wasn't cheap to join the church. It wasn't easy to join the church. Pre-Diocletian period, 303 AD, it's when the Christian persecution stopped in the world. It's my favorite section of church history, pre-303 AD. Because how much of a sacrifice was it to believe in Christ? What did it cost you to believe? Like a lot. It couldn't be here. Because if it was here, then you weren't really... A Christian it had to be here. You had to act it out because you're going against the status quo. You're going, you're literally being persecuted for what you believe. So if you believe it, then you're going to be persecuted. If you don't believe it, okay, you're not going to be persecuted. But see, this belief, this cost is what happened in the community here. This community in Acts, it cost them something. And if they didn't want to follow, they didn't have to. But if they tried to enter it for their own selfish desires, tried to enter it for their own gain, they tried to do something with it that was unrighteous. The response of the Lord was seen and was known by not just the church. The ecclesia, first time church is used here. Not just the fellowship of believers, but about all those who heard. Inside the church, outside the church. Note the Lord God is God. So that we know the Lord God is God. Here, 
here, here, and in our lives outside of here. Know that the Lord God, that the Lord is God. With that, let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we thank you. God, we thank you for being so, so good to us. God, we thank you that no matter what happens, no matter what we do, Lord, your love is always shown to us. God, I pray that today, Lord, as we go out and as we close our time here, Lord, that you put it on our hearts to live fully sold out for you. God, to live fully on fire for you. God, just as that church did. God, these possessions aren't ours. Whatever we own. But God's to be used for your glory. So God, we just give it all to you. God, we give it on your hands. Show us. Give us the wisdom of how to use it. And Lord, love us and help us to know your love and the hope that is in you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.